Well, good morning, New City. Thanks so much for joining today, this Sunday. And real quick before I begin, I just want to point out, as you leave today, we've got these new little invite cards that will be in the lobby. Uh, it says our website, Sundays at 10 a.m., and the best part about it, it's got a little uh, map on the back. And if you're telling people about New City, sometimes you're like off Glenwood. If you don't typically drive on Glenwood, you might not know where it is. So it says exactly where it is, and we've got plenty of them. So feel free to take some, put them in your car, or your purse, your wallet, as you're telling people about Jesus or want to invite them. That's an easy way to do it. Um, as I begin today, I want to share a story of a little boy who one day went into the backyard and was overheard talking to himself as he strutted through his backyard wearing his baseball cap and a ball and a bat. And he said to himself, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. So he goes to the backyard and he yells, throws the ball in the air. He swings, he misses, and he yells strike one. He's a little frustrated, but undaunted. He does it again. He picks up the ball. He says, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. He throws the ball into the air. He swings. Strike two. At this point, he's kind of upset, and he takes a moment to examine himself, his bat, his ball. He spits in his hands. He rubs them together. He straightens his cap. He tries one more time. I'm the greatest hitter in the world. He throws the ball up in the air, and he misses. Strike three. Wow, he exclaimed, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. Now, I share that story because today, as we continue our time in the book of Genesis, uh, we're going to look at this question. What should we do when God's promises are different than our plans? Right? When we think we're going to do something, or we're good at something, or we're going towards something, but it finds out that, something, that God has maybe something different for us, or he's leading us in a different direction, what do we do when God's promises, what he's asking of us, is different than what we had planned, or what we had thought, or even what we had desired? And what do you do if God's promises where he's leading you is actually an objectively better thing than what you wanted, but you still want to do what you want to do? That's our question here this morning. What should we do? When God's promises are better, or sorry, are different than what we had in mind. And so, if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 17? If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you, page 12. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. We have been in Genesis for much of the year, uh, this year. And so today, we are picking up the story uh, of the story of Abram. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we particularly focused on this man named Abram, who's also known as Abraham, who God says, if you follow me, trust me, I'm going to make your name great, make you the father of many nations, and all these sorts of things. And so Abram, up until this point, has had some highlights, and he's had some lowlights. And last week, if you were with us, we worked at Genesis 15 and 16. 15, God appears to Abram again, says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And of course, Abram, the problem is him and his wife, Sarai, uh, have not been able to have kids. And so chapter 16 begins 10 years after God appeared to Abram, saying, this is going to happen. Nothing has worked. And so Abram and Sarah do take the uh, matters into their own hands. Abram takes one of Sarai's servants as his second wife and gets her pregnant, and they assume that this child is going to be the one that God promised. Now, that's weird to us, but it was actually a common pro practice in the ancient world, particularly for wealthy families. If you did not have a child, uh, that you would marry another woman, have a child through her, and that would be count as you and your primary wife, Sarai, in this point. So that would be their child. So they do this because, again, God had told them 10 years ago, nothing has happened. And so they think, well, this is, must be what we're supposed to do. They have a child. Abram assumes that this child, Ishmael, is going to be the one, the heir that God promised. That's what he assumes. However, we're going to see in chapter 17, that's not exactly what God wanted from Abram, and he's actually not going to be the promised heir. And so we'll pick up the story, chapter 17, verse 1. It says this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty. 
Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Now, we'll see in just a second, just for timeline purposes, chapter 17 happens 13 years after chapter 16, and 23 years after chapter 15, and 25 years after chapter 12. So all I just said, I know it's a lot of numbers, uh, it's been 25 years since God first appeared to Abram, said, I'm going to make your name great. They have a child, and this was 13 years ago, between 16 and 17. Ishmael is about to turn 13 years old, and God appears to Abram again. And God invites him to walk with him. He says, be blameless. Now, for our purposes, it's, it's better to understand blameless, not to think of like perfect or never sin, but rather wholeness of relationship or integrity. But what God is saying, continue to walk with me, continue to trust me, follow me, walk with me so that I can continue to establish my covenant with you. So while Abraham is, or Abram is responsible to walk with God, the covenant is still entirely God's gift to him, that God is going to be gracious to him, but walk with me so that you can experience it. And then God says this in verse 3, then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. So again, God is repeating what he has said multiple times to Abram, but he's actually going to make it even better. Uh, uh, verse 5, your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. Verse 7, I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give you the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. So again, here is God's covenant, but he's actually expanded it and made it even better here. So the first two encounters of Abram, God tells him all these things, but now he says, not only are you going to be the father of one nation, you're going to be the father of many nations, and he changes his name here from Abram to Abraham. Now, Abram means exalted father, and Abraham means father of many or father of a multitude. And I think we're supposed to understand this as both a biological sense, but also as a, in a spiritual sense. And the reason we say that, fa- that Abraham is the father in a spiritual sense is because in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament writers uh, pick up on this and they actually say as much. So for example, in places like Romans chapter 4 or Galatians chapter 3, they include anyone who follows the Lord through Jesus as part of Abraham's family, which is why I don't know if, if this was like for you when you grew up in church, when I grew up in church and I heard the song like, Father Abraham had many sons, I'm one of them, so are you. I remember thinking like, but I'm not, because I'm not Jewish. Like, how in the world am I, am I part of? But what they're saying here is, no, anyone who now is a follower of Jesus can experience the blessings of God that was first promised through Abraham. Now, I want to point out something here just a second that's kind of technical, but it helps us understand what's going on here. Uh, in verse 4, it says God is going to make his permanent tra- uh, covenant with Abraham. Uh, some translations say everlasting. And while uh, that is a good tra- translation of the Hebrew word phrase, permanent or everlasting, it's probably best to understand what God is saying here as open-ended perpetuity rather than absolute eternity. 
rather than like this will never, ever change. And the reason you would say that is because the Hebrew word here that we have translated as permanent, some translations say everlasting, is from the Hebrew word olam, which can be understood, and it's actually used this way a few times in the Old Testament, as an open-ended vow. It's kind of like if somebody says, may the king live forever. What they're actually saying is, long live the king. They're not actually saying the king's like never going to die, but they're wanting health and prosperity for a very long time. This is what the covenant that God is promising Abram. Now, now here's why this matters, because the implication of this covenant here is that these promises from God are not temporary, nor are they on a trial basis, but they are permanent in the sense that there is no other alternative agreement and vision. Like God is going to do this, but it does not mean that these covenants serve, the, the covenant, the, the, what this covenant is doing here will never be obsolete. So for example, circumcision, which we're going to talk about in a second, was a sign of the covenant for Israel, though it becomes obsolete when Christ comes. In other words, you don't have to be circumcised to join the family of God now. Or the Levitical priesthood that's set up in the first five books of the Old Testament. You have Aaron in the Exodus and then his family, the Levites after him. Or they are the priests of God's people. Uh, though when the coming of Christ, you no not longer need a priest to intercede for you. But they had a purpose or a function for a very long time. That's what God is setting up here. And so again, for us this morning, as we're talking about what do we do with the promises of God, especially when they're different than our plans, well, here's one of the first things we see. That we rarely know how God will fulfill his promises. We rarely know how God is going to fulfill what he has promised to do, even if we're like 99% sure that God has promised us something or he's leading us to do something, right? Abram over and over again has been wondering, how is this going to happen, right? I have no children. How am I going to be the father of a great nation? Or this might be weird to him now. It's like, well, I already know this. Like I have a son named Ishmael. Why are you telling me this again? Uh, Even when Jesus was on earth and he was telling his disciples and those following him that he has to die in order to initiate the kingdom of God, right? As you read the gospels, you see often the disciples are very confused by that, right? Because how in the world is Jesus supposed to initiate a kingdom if he's dead, right? Dead people typically stay dead. You cannot be a king if you're dead. They were very confused how God was going to actually accomplish his promises, right? Even for us, like even little picture, like think of the things going on in your life. Like you might wonder, God, how can you use more pain I'm going through for good? Or how is God, how are you going to encourage my soul when everything seems so overwhelming? Or how is God actually going to answer the prayer that you're asking for, right? Even if you think he's going to do it, like how are you actually going to make this happen? And to that, I just want to say, I mean, if you're there, and if you're wondering, God, how? God, I want to trust you, but God, I do not see how you're going to do this. I just want to say, it is okay. Uh, Rather, it is normal even to say, God, I don't know how, but I am going to try and trust you. That is a very normal place to be. God, I don't know how you're going to do this. God, I don't know why you're asking me to do this. God, I've prayed for this good thing for a long time, but I'm going to try and trust you. And what's ironic about being in that situation is oftentimes we think, God, if I'm struggling, if things aren't working out, then I must be doing a poor job of being faithful. When the actual, the reality of the situation is that's actually some of the times that you are the most faithful in your life. In fact, it makes me think of a quote from 
a book called The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read it, it was written by C.S. Lewis. And in the book of The Screwtape Letters, it's basically from the perspective of Satan and his demons. And he refers to God and the angels as their enemy. And in the book, basically, it's a fictional book, but everybody has like a demon assigned to them who is trying to get them to fall away or to not follow God. And so the main character in this part of the book is, is, doing a, is having a really hard time. Life is going terribly. And his demon who's assigned to him, his demon's name is Wormwood. And Wormwood is super excited because his person is struggling. And so Wormwood is like writing letters to his like superior manager demon, telling them how things are going. He's super excited. And then the manager demon writes back to Wormwood to be cautious. And he says this, it'll be on the screen. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, he's talking about God, God's the enemy, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him, every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. In fact, one of the most extraordinarily faithful things you and I can do is to continue to trust God when you have no reason to. That is the mo- one of the most extraordinarily faithful things that you can do. And so for Abraham, God is going to do all of these great things that he promised. He's going to make him into the father of many nations. He's going to give him the land that he's currently residing as an inheritance for his offspring. He's going to make him the father of God's chosen people from which all of the world will have the opportunity to be blessed. And even if Abraham doesn't know how all these things are going to come to pass, here is what Abraham must do. So if all this sounds good, here is what God asks of Abraham. We'll pick it up in verse 9. God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Walk with me and all these things that I've said will happen. And here's how I know that you want to participate. It says this, every one of your males must be circumcised. Verse 11, you must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. In other words, if anyone joins your nation or lives among you, verse 13, whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So you might be wondering, why? Why is this? So, so here's what's happening here. Um, here, what God is saying is how you will demonstrate your desire to walk with me and to want to trust me. Circumcision is the sign that you are saying, God, I want to be part of your people. Now, to be clear, uh, circumcision is not a condition of the covenant, but rather it is a sign of participation in it. That God, I want to walk in, I want to experience all these things that you have said, and here's how I'm going to show you that I want to participate in it. This is how you, Abraham, and your offspring will show you want to stay in this covenant. Now, you might be wondering, why is circumcision the covenant? Okay, so let me just explain something here just for a minute. First, if you don't know what circumcision is, uh, here's a picture. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I can do that. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> now, for real. So, if you, but let me just say this real quick. If you don't know what circumcision is, let me just say this. Our kids are eight and five years old. Christine and I have always used the real things to describe, to, to, for the names of body parts, because we want our kids to know what things are. So, I'm going to use the real word for body parts, okay? So, I think if my five-year-old can be with this, you guys can too. Okay? Circumcision is where you, when you cut off the foreskin, some of the skin off of a penis, and so it's going to look different for the rest of the li- their life. Now, why would God want this to be the sign of the covenant? So again, to be clear here, circumcision was not new to ancient readers. They would, they would be familiar with what was going on here. And for though, but however, what God is asking the Israelites to do is different than what the other nations that did practice circumcision did. So for the, for the nations, particularly the ancient Near East, that did practice some form of circumcision, they typically circumcised males at one of two times during their life, either at around 13 years old as a rite of passage into male, manhood or right before a man was to be married. So if a man was going to be married and the culture practiced circumcision, it was performed by the soon-to-be male in-laws as a sign that this groom was being considered welcomed into the family, right? So if you're like going to get married at some point soon, if this time you're like, I'm not sure, do I actually want to do this, right? But this was a sign, right, that, that you're a man, or this was a sign that you are now going to be part of this community. And in the ancient world, when you were, became a man, again, in the ancient world, everything flew, uh, went, flowed through the father. So legal, legal things, inheritance, land rights. And so uh, when you turn 13 years old, you say, I'm going to be accepted as a leader, or as, a, as a leader in my family. It was a sign of what you were stepping into. Um, Now, what's interesting, we don't know this. We don't know this for sure, but it might not be coincidental that God appears again to Abraham here in chapter 17, right when Ishmael is or is about to be 13 years old. Again, we don't know this, but it might not be a coincidence. Perhaps Abram was wondering whether this new nation that God was calling him to, to lead, was, that was, in his mind, going to come from Ishmael, should practice this as a sort of rite of passage. Well, we don't know, but ancient readers, I, I just want to say, would, be, would, have, would have perhaps wondered this, right? They would have understood what circumcision was for, and so they might be wondering, why now is God saying this to Abram? Now, that being said, here is what is unique about what God is asking Abram to do. What here, God is now giving theological meaning to, for Abram and his descendants of what circumcision is going to be for them. And what also is unique about it is it was supposed to be done when a baby was eight days year old, eight, eight, eight days old, eight days year old, <laughs> eight days old, which was not, I mean, if, if any ancient cultures practice circumcision, they probably, none of them probably practice it this early. And what's happening here, doing this to infants shows that the children from the very beginning are part of God's covenantal family. That from the very beginning, they are being set apart for God. So not just for manhood or not just for marriage, but for God. Again, this text doesn't necessarily say this, but this is much more likely how this might have been seen, how circumcision or how, how circumcision was understood at that time. Now, for time's sake, I'm not going to jump into all of it here, but I do want to mention for, for New Testament believers, we also have a sign of the covenant, and it is called baptism. 
In fact, Jesus actually commands followers of Jesus to be baptized. And if you have never taken that step of faith, whether you're a brand new follower of Jesus or you've been following Jesus for a while, I would encourage you to text NCC baptism, all one word, to 97,000 so that we can talk about you following Jesus in baptism. And I would just say this. Many people might say, well, I don't know if baptism's for me. I'm not sure if I should get baptized. If you are not willing to follow Jesus in baptism, you probably are not willing to follow Jesus in other things he's asking you to do. Okay, so if you're not been follow, if you're not been baptized yet, we would love to do that to to show others that you are part of God's family. Now, for Abram, again, all this sounds great, right? Everything God talks about with the covenant, you're like, right on, it's amazing, father of many nations. Now we've got a sign that we're going to participate. Maybe not so excited to do it, but after you do it, it's like, good, now I'm part of the family. It gets bigger and bigger. Every time God appears to Abraham, his promise gets better. But then, here's what happens in verse 15, which is kind of interesting. It says, God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. Now, again, what's happening here? Uh, I just want to mention this. They are a lot older than we are. They are going to live a little bit longer than we do. But it's st- still, apparently to Abraham, this is too old for people to have kids. And, and it's really easy to overlook what is actually happening here, which is a lot of tension, frustration, and probably discouragement on Abraham's part. Right? Again, imagine how this would have felt if you were Abraham and Sarah, if you were to hear this or to learn of this. Again, we think, great, you know, we've always assumed if Abraham's married to Sarah, that she's the one that's supposed to have a child. And so now things are going to finally be what we thought they were going to be. It all worked out. But this is not, understandably, if you put your mind, your, 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 yourself in Abraham's shoes, how he would have heard it. Right? Again, the first, this is the first time, by the way, that God says that Sarah will have a son. So if you were with us last week, why would Abraham and Sarah take Hagar and do all these things with Sarah? Well, God actually never technically says it's going to be Sarah. He, all he says is that Abraham's going to have a son. And if, if Sarah is not able to have a child, well, then clearly isn't he supposed to do it through some other means? Now, again, we probably thought it was supposed to be Sarah all along, but you might understand why, I don't know, 23 years after God first appeared for you and you had no child, why you might try to do something else. Originally, God has only said up until this point that Abraham was going to have a son, that Abraham was going to be made into a great nation, and that he would have a son. Again, it does not at all make what Sarah and Abraham did to Hagar right if you were with us last week, but I think it helps us understand why. In their mind, they might actually have thought, well, this is clearly how it's supposed to happen. And so we are told here that Sarah is going to have a son, even though she is much older. Now, even though they live a little bit longer here, Abraham's response indicates that at this point, it is too late to have a baby. We'll see this next week in chapter 18, but very likely Sarah has already gone through menopause, and so it would literally have to take a miracle for her to have a child. So, like, not only is that, like, this has not happened, she's never had a kid, like, it seems to be physically impossible now. Now, in spite of all that, you might be saying, fine, but if God promised it, why would you be upset? Like he's literally saying it is going to happen like next year. So no longer sometime, like it's actually going to happen. Why would this make Abraham upset? Well, again, think about it. If you're Abraham, 
for 13 years, Ishmael's 13 now, for 13 years, he and Sarah have assumed that Ishmael was the promised son. That Ishmael was the one from whom all these inheritance would be passed and all these nations would come from. Everything Abraham has done for 13 years has been with this in view. And for all we know, I, would, I mean, I would say almost certainly, he has told Ishmael this at this point. They have talked. They have dreamed together. He's probably said, you know, well, all this land is going to be like King Mufasa and Simba. It's all going to be yours one day. He took him up on the pride rock. It's all coming to you, right? They've talked about this. They've dreamed about this. Abraham has viewed him as an heir. He's probably, again, he's about 13 years old. He's probably started to train him on how to be a man and how to lead. And he's going to be the one that's over all of Abraham's possession and all the people and all the flock. So undoubtedly, he's probably even trained Ishmael for these things. And so you want to talk about disorienting, that for 13 years you have loved this son dearly, you're the promised one, and now you're being told it ain't going to be him. You can understandably see how distraught this might make him. In fact, Abraham is afraid that this means God has rejected Ishmael. That's why he says, is Ishmael not enough for you? Who Abraham, again, he deeply loves him. And again, this whole time, Abraham thought Ishmael was the promised son. So again, to be clear, for 13 years, Abraham has not been waiting for another son. He has not been waiting for anyone else. He thought this was it. And also what you see happening here is Sarai's name has changed to uh, Sarah, which is a, both of these names are a, a variant of basically of the meaning of the name princess. What's likely happening with her name change is that her birth name references her, no, her, high, her noble and high social status rank from her family. That's what Sarah means, noble, high rank. Again, we know that Abraham's family was wealthy, and so that's probably why they ended up getting married. She had a family that was also wealthy as well. But Sarah, which is going to be her covenantal name, looks ahead to her noble descendants. In other words, not only was she from a high class, you know, noble family, that she's going to have kings come from her line. And a little Bible trivia for you, she is the only woman who has her name changed in the Bible, that Abraham and Sarah are going to be made great. But again, Abraham is confused by this. He's concerned. What about Ishmael? And so here's how God responds, verse 19. But God said, no, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covering for his covenant for his future offspring. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. When he finished talking with God, with him, God withdrew from Abraham. So his son's going to be named Isaac. Isaac means he laughs because Abraham laughs here with doubtful, disbelieving laughter, as, so, as well as Sarah is going to do in chapter 18 when she hears about what is going on. However, God says, I'm not going to cast away Ishmael. He will also be made into a great nation, even if not the same greatness or in the same way as Isaac. And so what we see happening here, again, it's worth for us to understand as we consider what God, things God might have promised us or the things that he might have led us to, into in our life is this, that God's promises can be hard to accept. Right? What we see happening in this story, what some of you know, you just know experientially in your own lives, that God's promises can be hard to accept. Let's be honest, right? Sometimes we are really good with our plans. 
Like, we are good with our ideas. Like, we know what's coming. Like, we're comfortable. We're in a rhythm. Like, we're good with what, how things are going at this particular moment. Even if what God is, has for us, what God is asking us to do is objectively better, would be objectively better for us than what we're experiencing now, if it includes unknowns or uncomfortableness, we would rather stick with what we have, right? We'd rather stick with what we know than go out and, and be uncomfortable and not being sure how these things are actually going to come to fruition, right? God's promises can be hard to accept. Again, for Abraham, it has been about 25 years from his first encounter with God until now, when the full picture of everything is finally revealed to him. And Abraham is explicitly told, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be the father of many nations. They're going to possess the, the, the land that you live in, and you're going to have a son from Sarah. His name is going to be Isaac, right? 25 years is a long time to wait, right? He says he's going to make a great nation, all these sorts of things. You have to imagine Every time that God spoke to Abraham from the first time in chapter 12 to chapter 15 to chapter 17, uh, you have to imagine that this is not at all how Abraham thought out it would, thought it would play out 25 years ago. And every time he talks to God again, he probably readjusts and seems, okay, this is what's going to happen. Okay, now this is what's going to happen. Okay, now we're going to take Hagar. Now it's going to be Ishmael. This is what is going to happen. And yet it changes every time. Right? There is no doubt, again, that Abraham had dreams and ideas of, and thoughts about how Ishmael and his descendants would take this land and how they would remember, remember Abraham and all the things that God did through Abraham. And now it has changed again, which leads us to also say this, that, that even when God's promises are better, they can lead to grief. Even when they're better, even when we accept them, even if we want to follow the Lord and, and follow Jesus, we have, I think we need to be honest, sometimes it's hard and it is okay to grieve that things are different than what you thought they were going to be. What's been interesting to me uh, as my time as a pastor, I've, I've, I've began to know this theme year, uh, after years of meeting with people and talking with people, uh, particularly when it comes to like jobs and career changes, right? For many of us as a kid, we had ideas of who we were going to become or what we we're going to do. Even in college, like you might have gone to college for this particular major so that you could do this particular job, but then you find yourself at a crossroads and you find your desires changing or maybe doors opening that's going to lead you to a different job or a different career field. And so I'll be talking to many people and they're like, man, like I actually want to do this new thing, but I feel weird. Like, it, like I feel, it's like a grievous thing that I have to say, I have to change what I thought was going to be for my life. Like many of us have been there. We're, what we thought was going to happen didn't happen. We're actually excited about this new thing, but you fear the strange sadness of like, but I thought my life was going to look like this. In fact, some of you are wrestling with that right now, whether it's a career change or relationship change or moving to a brand new city or moving somewhere else. Like if things going to life, you're like, I thought it was going to look like this, but actually I want this thing and I, I want to follow God into this thing. But man, it, it's kind of sad to, to, for me not to do what I thought I was going to do, that my life does not look like what I thought it was going to look like, even when God's promises are better. We need to acknowledge that it is okay to grieve that he is changing the direction of what we thought we were going to do. And so here's what happens next. The last part we'll read, chapter 17, verse 23, says this. So Abraham took his son Ishmael and those born in his household or purchased, every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. 
Abraham was 99 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. And his son Ishmael was 13 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. On that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. Verse 27, and all the men of his household, whether born in his household or purchased from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And so again, another high point of faith for Abraham, uh, he participates in the covenant. He agrees, he submits himself to God, that his, him and his offspring would walk in this covenant. He does it on that very day. He doesn't kind of argue. He doesn't say, well, let me think about it. Let me come back next week or tomorrow. That very day, he trusts, he participates, and he does what God asks him to do. Now, remember, again, at this point, he still does not know how this is going to play out. We might know, you've read the story, but he does not know. Well, he does not know how this is all going to happen. He does not know what Isaac's going to become. God was explicit, told him it was going to happen, but even, even told him the name of his son, but Abraham still has to respond in obedience at this moment before he actually sees anything that is promised. He has to trust that what God said is actually going to happen. And so again, for us this morning, we've been talking about what should we do when God's promises are different than our plans? How should we react to them? The last thing I want to leave us this, here this morning is what we see happening at the end of chapter 17, and that's this, that experiencing the promises of God requires walking with God. To experience the promises and the blessings and the grace and the forgiveness and the love that God has for us, even in the midst of the life's most difficult moments, it requires us to walk with him. Abraham here, he participates in the covenant. In fact, all the males in his household and under him, they get circumcised. That God is still blessing Abraham undeservedly, but in order for Abraham to experience it, he has to walk with him. He has to trust him. And for us this morning, this is also for us a picture of the gospel. The gospel is what God has done to us through Jesus, that Jesus came, lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserve to die, arose three days later to show his power over sin and death so that anyone who follows and trusts in Jesus may experience the grace and mercy of God. But in order for us to experience the grace and mercy of God, we have to walk with him. We have to trust him. And so for me, for example, like I am not all, at all against the sinner's prayer. If people say, well, pray, you know, accept Jesus in your heart, pray, forgive, trust him. In fact, for many of us, for many of you, uh, that actually might have been your first step in following Jesus, to actually pray and publicly trust the Lord. I'm not against that. However, we just need to know that there is no pray a prayer and I'm good in the Bible. There's no pray one time, God forgive me, I'm great, I'm going to live my own life, I'm going to do my own thing because I've prayed a prayer and I'm fine, right? If you trust in Jesus, you will walk with him, not perfectly, and it will look different for all of us given our backgrounds and our histories and what we've been through and what we've been taught growing up. It will look differently for all of us. You'll stumble, you'll fall, you'll take a step back, but you will walk, in fact, uh, Jesus, uh, John, one of Jesus' leading disciples, actually says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Last thing I'll read, one of my favorite passages of all of Scripture, talks about this very thing. In John chapter 1, uh, 1 John chapter 1, the apostle John is encouraging believers to flee from sin. But he knows that all of us will still sin and fall short. And so he says this in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for only for ours, but for those, for also for those of the world. One of my favorite illustrations of this passage is when you think of a child learning to walk for the first time. If you've had a kids, you know, you might have seen this, like when kids take their first step, they're not actually walking, they're just surviving. 
right? They've got these really big fat heads in proportion to their body, and they're taking a couple, they take a step or two, and what do they do? Right? They, they hit it. They smack their face on the coffee table, on the ground, whatever, and in that moment, when your kid takes its first step, and it falls to the down, ground, or she falls to the ground, what do you not say? Idiot. Right, you're not like, must have got your jeans because he wouldn't, right, that's what you do. What do you do? You're freaking out. You're walking. You're getting your phone and so you have your child, they take their first step and so you do it again and then you don't catch them because you're trying to get on video so they get a bloody nose because they smack the ground because you're so excited that they're walking, that they're taking their steps and what John is saying for us here that if you're in Christ, as you follow the Lord, as you take steps and as you fall, God in heaven is not saying idiot. God in heaven is not saying how dare you. Instead, you have a God in heaven, Jesus advocating for us my son, my daughter, they are walking. They are walking and they are mine. Listen, if you want to experience the promises of God in your life, your first step is not to try harder, read your Bible more, pray more, give more money, never miss church again. Your first step is to trust in the blood of Jesus that he has accomplished for you what you could have never accomplished for yourself. And as you and I walk with Jesus, he celebrates. He doesn't mock us when we fall, but he says, they are walking. This is the God who invites us into covenant with him.